Welcome to the divisional round preview edition of Unexpected Points. I have a special guest today. We're going to review the games that are going on this weekend. We're going to talk a little bit about the GM and coach hiring cycle, and then we're going to do a postmortem on the Seattle Seahawks, their season, and maybe their this era of a playoff caliber perennial team. Let's get to it. All right. Uh, let me just say that I am very happy to be joined by a special guest today. When I thought about, you know, wanting to discuss the playoffs, wanting to discuss details about decision making, about the hiring cycle going on right now, and I wanted to discuss the Seattle Seahawks and someone who has intimate knowledge of everything going on with the Seahawks, I can only think of one person. And, you know, that person was Mina Kimes, but she was not available. So, Instead, I do have uh, Ben Baldwin on the pod. So, Ben, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's that's quite a step down, so I apologize, but uh, <laughs> I, I think this should be fun. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, I did not contact Mita for for this one. Uh, she is friend of the pod, though. She was on the pod last year. Uh, maybe I'll have her on again. But she's she's kind of she, she she's gone like very football guy, not not football guy, but very like scheme person. So we, we've got to stay. We got to stay in our safe space here as nerds and make sure that. Although you, you do a little too much posting, I think sometimes about about scheme also. But well, I'll, I'll let that slide for this. So. So I laid it all out. Let's start, you know, cut, cut the pleasantries here. Let's get into the action. Divisional round. And for this round, I think we're going to have a better weekend of football as far as competitiveness than we had last weekend. All of the games are relatively close if we're looking at the point spreads going into this game. I don't think anything is more than four points at this at this stage, whereas we had, you know, six and a half points for the Bengals were favored. They had the Steelers were 12 and a half point underdogs last week. The Eagles were eight and a half point underdogs. So nothing like that this week. But yet I'm still very confused going into these games, more confused than I would be normally at this stage, in particular about the Tennessee Titans and how they're going to look, not just because of the return of Derrick Henry, which we know is extremely important, but how this team matches up against the Bengals, a Bengals team that my numbers has been, my numbers have been kind of fading a little bit for the second half of the season where momentum is picked up for them versus a Titans team that's coming off of a bye, but yet people probably see them as potentially the weakest team in the, still in the playoffs here for the AFC. Uh, well, what are your thoughts about this matchup and how are you looking specifically at the Titans? Like how can we view what happened during the regular season versus what we have now being the injury concerns, the COVID stuff that happened all season long, the bye, everything else? Yeah, I think these, of all the teams left in the playoffs, I think these are by far the two hardest teams to figure out. And there's, like, some teams we're not sure who they'll be on the week-to-week basis. Like, I think the Rams and Bills both have a pretty high variance uh, in terms of, like, their top end and their bottom end. But I think that's yeah. different than the, the Titans and Bengals, where we just, we, we don't even know who they are in the first place. Like, we, we think the Bills are a really good team that sometimes lay an egg. But how good are the Bills? How good are the Titans? I I think, or not, uh, the Bengals and Titans, like the, for the Bengals, I was so sure that they were going to lose to the Chiefs and it, early in that game, it, it thought that that was going to happen. And then once they started leaning on Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase uh, and, and really turned them loose, they've looked completely different. They were one of the run heaviest teams relative to expectation uh, for the first like three months of the season. And then in the past month and a half or whatever, they've, they've really leaned on Joe Burrow and 
I think you could make the argument or at least talk yourself into it that they're they're a fundamentally different team now that they have kind of figured all this out than earlier in the season. And that makes kind of these season long measures um, not totally adequate. Not, not that the, these measures aren't weighing more recent games more heavily. I, I think most models do that, but it's still like kind of uh, possibly a, a transformation. And then with the Titans, of course, there's all these injury concerns where we, we, we saw them lose to the Texans. Um, get pounded by the Patriots in the middle of the season. But if you look at who they had, especially on offense, like they were rotating offensive linemen. They were throwing to like actual practice squad players as their number one receivers. And it's just a totally different team. The players are not going to be the same players on the field against the Bengals as we saw for much of the season. So for both of these teams, um, the, the matchup broke or the, the bracket broke extremely well for them. One of them is going to be in the AFC championship game, no matter what. And I think even a couple months ago, I think that would have been a surprise um, given the form that both those teams were in, but um, that for the Titans, they're healthier and for the Bengals, they look a lot better. So um, I, I really have no idea what to uh, expect from this game. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a fair take. I mean, I was, I was interested to see where it would end up. So it looks like, According to this, it says the Bengals opened at two and a half, and I'm not sure exactly when that happened. It looks like it's more in the three and a half. I'm sorry, not the Bengals. The Titans opened at two and a half. Now they're a three and a half point favorite. So the thing with the Bengals, like if we look through their recent games, um, this playoff game, when I had my adjusted scores, I actually had Vegas being about equal to to Cincinnati in this game, which is a little bit weird to say, because in, in some ways you saw the talent coming through for Cincinnati and you see the high-end play from Joe Burrow that everyone was talking about. You see the high-end play from Jamar Chase. Yet, you know, they win by a touchdown. They almost give up a touchdown at the end of the game. They get a strip sack as part of what ended up happening here. So, so there's that one. If you go back to the regular season, that Kansas City game you mentioned, I um, mean, my adjusted numbers had Kansas City as being a slightly better team. And then if you go back even further to some of these games that they won, um, going all the way back to the first game of the season, even the, the game that they won against Minnesota, it's just a lot of different games where they've scraped by and it's been this high end play that they had. And what made things difficult for them before was they were this run heavy team. And last week, I don't know if we're in the concern zone, but against uh, the Raiders, they were 4% according to my numbers over expectation passing the ball. So not close to the, you know, 12 to 15%. They were their two strong offensive performances before that. So I'm a little bit worried about that, whether or not they'll revert back to running the ball because they just can't do it at all. Yeah. And if you were a Bengals fan trying to talk yourself into this, then maybe the explanation would be against the Raiders. They were favorites and just had to kind of take care of business, not take a lot of risks. And maybe for that reason, they relied on the run game more than they did against uh, obviously the Chiefs where you, you have to throw to keep up with them. And obviously game script played a role in, in that Chiefs game as well. But for the Titans, they're playing a road game against the team on a bye. And um, I, I, th there's a possibility of them falling behind. But on the other side, the Titans are another team that we're fully aware of can throw away a bunch of early down plays on run plays. And that, that's how they lost in the playoffs last year was just stubbornly uh, sticking with the run against the Ravens uh, when it wasn't working relative to passing. And that, that's how they lost that game. So I, there, I think there's a world where both teams are too run heavy. And as a result, it is low scoring for a while. And the, the first one to kind of build a lead will possibly force the other team out of that. But I think if I were the Bengals, I would say the last time we saw the Titans playing, they were struggling to stop 
Davis Mills and Danny Amendola, and they they just got torched in that game. So if if they can't cover receivers like that, then I I would be doing everything I could to get Jamar Chase and, and T against the ball uh, even early in the game. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things for the Titans where I feel like <clears throat> you could say the the same sort of arguments that you could say with the Bengals about running the ball too much and how it lowers maybe their upside a bit there. It allows other teams to stay in the game, but it's almost like that's written in stone for them in, in some sort of ways. Even with Derrick Henry out, they haven't really turned into being a pass-heavy team. You know, when they've had Julio Jones and A.J. Brown, you haven't really seen it that much. So I do think that's going to be interesting. How, how do you think about defense in this game? Now, I know we like to say the defense doesn't matter uh, as, as a tongue-in-cheek sort of thing here, but the Titans' defense has been performing, I think, at a better level this year, at least as far as generating pressure, and Burrow takes a ton of sacks here. And uh, do you think that that matters at all? Like, do you have a little bit more confidence in what they can do and maybe them playing this run-heavy attack if they can combine it with some defensive pressure on the other side? Yeah, so I think that's possible. And, like, when people think about the Titans' defense, everyone remembers the, the like, three plays that they got to Matt Stafford and he uh, combusted. <laughs> that was, yeah, the beginning of the Matt Stafford uh, party for about a month there for all of us nerds, yeah. Yeah, but at, le- at least looking at their, I think, both pass, pass rush grades from PFF and pass rush win rate from ESPN, I think both are actually pretty low on the Titans. So yeah. whenever I post this, Titans fans are like, that can't be right. We got to Matthew Stafford, but like if you go back and rewatch that game, there's there's like there's a few very very high leverage wins from the Titans that turned into very bad Matt Stafford plays. But like even in that game on a play to play basis, Stafford had a ton of time, especially in the second half. So it, it's not like um, it was just a complete domination of the offensive line throughout the game. And and I think that is consistent with what we've seen from uh, the rest of the season from the Titans. So. Yeah, they have these players that can make these high-impact, high-leverage plays. Jeffrey Simmons, Harold Landry, uh, every once in a while, Bud Dupree, um, which was probably not a great contract, at least uh, hasn't been so far. But there, there's certainly the potential for that to happen. Um, but on the other side, um, that was true last week uh, with uh, Crosby and the Raiders pass rush. And for most of the game, the Bengals did a good job of getting the ball out pretty quickly. So. Like if they make an effort to do that, I think that they can neutralize that. And then it's just a matter of uh, Jamar Chase and th- those receivers winning in time. I, I think that's certainly possible. So I'm at, at least comparing the defenses. I think it's, it's probably close to a wash. And I, if I were the Titans, I would not feel great about the matchup on that side. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Titans are going to have real strong, uh, nobody believes in us type of energy going <laughs> onto the field. So if you're going to calculate that into your numbers, they're probably off, off the charts uh, for, for this one. Yeah. So I, I think again, Tannehill was one of these situations where I know when Henry went out, that there was a big focus on what the effect was. The Titans still won games, but their offense definitely took a step back at the same time, their running game while was up and down the running game wasn't like consistently bad they were still able to run the ball fairly effectively with uh with Foreman for the most part there what happened was Tannehill just became like this turnover machine a lot of different games there so I mean I think that seems to be more of the the issue and again it's you know conveniently for us it kind of falls into this thing of the Titans winning or not is really going to be more about Ryan Tannehill than it is about anything else offensively yeah, and and not only Tannehill, but having AJ Brown back, having their offensive line back intact, uh, Julio Jones back, like a lot, a lot of those games, 
like that midseason Texans game where Tannehill, I think it was like five turnover t- turnover worthy plays in the fourth quarter alone, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. the low point. Yeah. It wasn't just that Henry was out, it was all of the receivers too. So the like the windows you're throwing into and, and the decisions you have to make, especially if you're trailing late in a game, like it's just a completely different offense and feel of the offense. And um against the Texans, with the caveat that it was the Texans in week 18, it, it looked much more similar to what we would expect from the Titans where they're getting these chunk plays from Julio Jones and AJ Brown. And that's, if they're going to win the game, I think that that is going to be how they do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Tannehill has graded well for us all year, despite the fact that he wasn't playing that poorly. But one of those, one of those things is, you know, one of my pet peeves with the PFF grades when it comes to sacks is the fact that he was like giving up a strip sack every game for, for a while there. So we, we don't really, we don't really hit him as hard on those as we do uh, like a like a quick-ish sort of sack where you give up a fumble. We don't hit them nearly as hard on those as we do on a turnover-worthy play that comes from throwing through through the air. Okay, yeah, so that, that was a little bit hard to to grasp, what's, what's going on in that game. Do you have anything interesting to say about Chiefs-Bills? Because the way that I look at it is, like, maybe the Bills could be a little bit overrated going into this game, coming off of the greatest offensive performance in NFL history, literally. Uh, last game, at the same time, the Chiefs offense stunk it up big time to start the game, but we all kind of forgot about that when they came back after, uh, you know, failing and, and having multiple turnovers on their first six drives of the game. So in in some ways, I've kind of viewed both of these teams as potentially offensively a little bit more skeptical, um, despite them being such great quarterbacks, a little more skeptical of them offensively. And then you start to wonder about defensively. I think the Bills have had some of the best pass defense, at least in the league so far this year but again that's something that can jump all over the place so do you have any big takes on this I I think it's pretty fair to say that Kansas City is a slight favorite in this one but you're not gonna really lean hard either way yeah that's pretty much where I am um they're the teams are probably about as good as each other and then you can give Kansas City a a slight edge for home field advantage um and yeah I I agree on the offenses in that like the high end for both is extremely high but we we both we seen both of these offenses really go through struggles. For the Chiefs, it was more like concentrated in the middle of the season, where with the Bills, it was kind of like a Cowboys thing going on, where every once in a while they would just lay an egg, and there's no way to predict it ahead of time. And, and even late in the season, the Bills were playing these games against like the was it Falcons and Jets? I want to say where like it's maybe Dolphins. It, it took them a long time to actually get going and do something on offense, and. Uh, just like the Chiefs against the Steelers, and if if one if that happens to one of these teams and not the other team, then there's a a possibility for one team to just get their blow, their doors blown off. Like, like we saw the the first time these two teams were um, the Bills won by a lot. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting about that first game is, because I have this tendency, which gets me in trouble sometimes, to uh, like be a bit contrarian and try to defend the guys who are getting pummeled by everyone. So that was like Daniel Sorensen, yep. uh, <laughs> Daniel Sorensen, whipping boy hour, uh, or, or game on that one. And I looked at some of those long plays that Allen was making. He was his time to throw on some of those was like four and a half, five seconds. Like it was just insane how much time he had to throw on some of these plays. So I get it. You know, Sorensen, got completely lost in coverage. But if you ask anyone to on the back end to play man coverage that much, and that's what the chiefs defense does. Right. And I feel like they've turned around a little bit offensively as far as their ability to, to bring pressure. Uh, now that they have Jones back on the inside, they have, you know, Clark, uh, you know, doing something on the outside, at least Uh, they have um, uh, Melvin 
Ingram that they brought in. So they, they have a little bit going on there. I, I just fundamentally, I know the numbers kind of prove this too, but the, it was just a totally flawed defense for Kansas City the first time because it was bringing pressure, not getting pressure, and trying to man up on the back end. It was a total disaster. Yeah, and then I guess the counter to that is they haven't totally solved this Sorensen thing where you, even if they're not playing man, they're sometimes... <laughs> for Sorensen. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're going in they're, for Sorensen. Yeah. Okay, let's, like, let's do it. Yeah, so like sometimes they're asking him to play the, the deep deep half in a cover two defense, and that, that's where you got that yeah. very long Jamar Chase touchdown where like if, if Sorensen is trying to... Yeah, cover, I don't know what he was doing on that one. <laughs> I don't know what he was doing on that one. He got he was kind of coming in, but then he didn't even... It looked like he didn't even know that he was covering the deep half, but yeah. Yeah, but if like if he's a deep half player and you're running Jamar Chase or Stefan Diggs at him, then like that, that is probably not going to go well for the chiefs. And that it, it's not like that Bengals game was that long ago. So if they're still trying to figure this all out, then I, I think there are, there are definitely some cracks in the armor potentially. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. I think the chiefs also, they have to, they got to score early. That was one of the things where I don't know, you never know what has a big effect, but when the two teams faced off last season in the AFC championship game, yep, yep. um, so when they faced off, I was pretty high on the Bills going into that game and how they looked. Uh, I forget what it was. I think the Chiefs may have been like a four-point favorite or something like that. And it's just the Bills got an early turnover, I believe, like a muffed punt or something like that or muffed kickoff. They got an early score, and then it was just a tidal wave in the other direction. And the Kansas City kind of had this blitzkrieg type of offensive performance, and the Bills could just get nothing going after that. So I think it'll be interesting to see how it starts off here, whether that Kansas City offense can really start off fast because um, they can't do what they did last week against the, against the Steelers and, you know, always expect like it's going to be one of these games like it was in the 2019 playoffs where they're down 24, nothing or 20, nothing in multiple weeks. And then they just come back. Um, that, that seems a little bit optimistic to assume something like that may happen. Yeah. I, I think the other um, notable part of the the playoff matchup last year was the, the bills repeatedly kicked field goals on fourth and short and, that's true. I'm, I'm very interested to see if they have learned their lesson. It, it looked like, at least when I checked early in the season, they were, they had been a lot more conservative on fourth downs than they were the past couple of years, which is kind of the opposite of what you would hope to see after what happened in the AFC Championship game. But um, if, if you wanted to be a Bills optimist, then maybe, maybe they're saving this for when they really need it, which is playing as the Chiefs again. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been really high on McDermott, um, partially because of just how he seems to uh, comports himself. Some of those fourth down decisions that you mentioned before, I probably give a lot, little bit too much credit for the fact that he was reportedly the choice of uh, Paul D. Podesta and Sashi Brown in that front office to come in in 2016 instead of Hugh Jackson. He was their preferred candidate. So I thought like, oh, he's been vetted there. And I was happy to see how he had performed in the, you know, the, the few ways that we can see how, how well they're implementing this kind of rigorous analytics approach as far as fourth downs. And you're right. He is more of a coin flip now at this point, whether or not he's going to be doing the right thing. There's a lot of the, the gut meter is really seems to be driving a lot of his decisions. So, uh, in a lot of circumstances, going up against Andy Reid, you have a huge advantage in that area. If you if you flex it, just whether or not he's going to flex that advantage that Reid normally gives his opponent um, by by being willing to kick on fourth and one multiple times inside of the opponent's territory. Yeah, if you have Josh Allen, um, especially like he's he's an incredible threat on fourth and short. Um, it, not just fourth and inches with QB sneaks, but all the like QB power rushing stuff. It's it's just really hard for a defense to stop. So. If, if you if you're hoping they beat the Chiefs, I, I think you're hoping that they really lean into that. 
yeah, I mean, they, they did. They leaned into that. They leaned into Josh Allen on some short down, uh, some short yardage, uh, kind of cute quarterback sweep type of plays. And God, he's really unstoppable on those. Um, it's pretty amazing. All right. So let's before we switch over to the NFC games, I want to quickly let everyone know who is listening in. If you want to get all of the PFF locked article content, if you want to get the betting tools that we have, you want to get the draft guide and it's going to be draft and free agency season ad nauseum coming up here these next few months, promo code unexpected, support the pod, let everyone know that you enjoy what you're listening to and you get 25% off any PFF subscription that is promo code unexpected. All right, NFC. Let's start with Packers and 49ers. And the 49ers have gotten to the point where I've been, you know, like I'm a Jimmy G truther. I think every anyone who listens to this pod on a regular basis knows that. Anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that. But if you look at where the the betting markets have looked at the 49ers, like last week they were the sexy pick for everyone to pick as the underdog to win. I mean, it happened, so I guess that was a good sexy pick. But the the line was not that big. I think it was something like four points. Uh, this weekend it is six points, which is you know, it's it's significant, but if you assume there's a point or so built in there because of the buy, if you assume there's a home field advantage of another, I don't know, point and a half, it depends on whether you believe that home field advantage still exists or not. If you assume there is a injury-ish sort of concern when it comes to Nick Bosa, when it comes to whatever's going on with with Garoppolo there, if you assume there is a short week concern, again, if you want to take off a couple of tenths of a point, um, and it's at five and a half in some places too. It's not that significant in this game. So I feel like the market has caught, caught up to me with the 49ers has maybe even gone past me on, on being faithful in the 49ers. Or maybe this is just about the, the, the last time they faced each other um, in 2019 playoffs and they were able to run all over them. But what do you think is going on in this game and how do you view these two teams and their relative uh, quality? Yeah, so I think the, the top level story right now for me is just the injuries on the 49ers side and especially Jimmy Garoppolo where we saw him play effectively with with the finger thing but uh it, for the past few weeks but <laughs> it's over the last couple of drives but you know you don't know if that's if that's yeah. Jimmy or if that's finger right he says he lost his grip on that last pass but it's like dude we've seen you airmail so many passes in your career, especially while moving that I don't know if I can give him that much uh, uh, of a discount for the injury on that. That's that's fair. But then there's also the shoulder thing, which at least some, like when I was just looking at like medical football, people, Twitter seem to think that that is possibly more of a concern. And like, if if you want to do these small sample size splits before and after he hurt his shoulder, like the 49ers were dominating that game before he landed on his shoulder. And then afterwards uh, they, didn't move the ball as much. There was that terrible interception, which uh, it sounds like the finger also played a role, but who knows whether it's the shoulder too. Um, so I think that is where my concern would be, would be um, the extent to which Jimmy Garoppolo is actually healthy. And then also whether Nick Bosa can clear the concussion protocol in time. I haven't seen any news on this, but but by the time people listening, maybe we'll have found out because the game, I think it would have to be uh ready by tomorrow because the game is on Saturday or something like that. Um, tomorrow meaning Friday. Um, but if, if the 49ers were healthy, I could absolutely see them beating this Packers team. We almost saw them do it in week three and both the teams were very different and there, there were injuries on both sides, but uh, the, the 49ers lead running back was Trey Sermon and I'm as much of a running backs don't matter guy as anybody, but if, if you're replacing him with 
a lot of Debo Samuel and some Eli Mitchell. That, like that's a lot better. Um, George Kittle wasn't really going at full strength uh, for a lot of the season. So I, I, I could definitely talk myself into the 49ers offense, just going through the Packers defense. And then it's just a question of whether the Packers could score to keep up. Um, so for me, it, a lot comes down to whether Jimmy Garoppolo um, for, for all his warts and all look, looks like the player that he can be, or just doesn't have it. And then question number two is how many injuries would it take for the 49ers to play the the player that they spent three first round draft picks on. <laughs> it's, yeah. Well, we'll see about that. Yeah. There's going to be some interesting off season talk. Re 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 Jimmy. Um, anyway, I want to talk to you about Jimmy in a second. Again, just to just, I, want, I need someone to push back against my trutherism a little bit here, or maybe get your opinion on that. But the first thing with Debo Samuel, uh, I'm just going to say I'm ready for draft season and everyone for the next couple of years, potentially everyone picking out these like bulky wide receivers and why they can be the next Debo Samuel at the next level. As if we haven't seen like Ty Montgomery and other guys in the past do like jack shit basically in the NFL. Um, so that that's going to be fun to see everyone try to pick out the next Debo Samuel who will suddenly turn every passing game into, I mean, every running game into passing game type efficiency, but number two, Jimmy. Okay. So give me your take is Jimmy Garoppolo. I know I I, I put the stats out there constantly about his EPA being in the top five, maybe even top three career wise over where he's been top three this season, I believe. Like, can you discount how much can you discount that because of Shanahan, because of weapons, because of whatever? Like, is he a good quarterback? You put him into another offense. Do you think he's actually good? Or even in this offense, how much juice is he giving you? over he's giving you some juice over Trey Lance obviously but over like another type of quarterback how much can we trust this guy because I'm sorry I'm going a little long here but one of the problems with the 49ers last week I think is similar to the the Bengals in a bit is the 49ers were so dominant Jimmy was uh converting so many third downs early that by becoming this really run heavy team after that and kicking field goals and not getting touchdowns that it only took a couple of minor, a couple of mistakes from Jimmy to lit the Cowboys all the way back in the game. So I don't think like some of the problem with Jimmy, I don't think is that he is bad, but that if Shanahan's not going to pass the ball with him to, to lean on an advantage there for a guy who's third in the league in EPA per play, then you let other teams back into the game because of the perception that he's bad. Yeah, I think that there's definitely a, a segment of people that think he's just straight up bad. And I think that's probably not fair to him. And like, the argument is that Shanahan does everything for him. and makes things very easy for him. And I'm sure that's true to an extent. Like if, if you swapped him and put him in, uh, I don't know, like the, the Falcons offense, maybe that's not fair to the Falcons, some, some other offense, um, <laughs> then his efficiency numbers wouldn't look as good. So yeah, I'm sure that's true. But at the same time, all these situations where people say that um, the the like true underlying quality of quarterback play comes out like on third downs or when you're behind and really need a drive. Like these are situations that Jimmy G has been very good in. So it's not just that the run game and the play action stuff is what's propping up his numbers. If you look at plays when the defense knows that they have to pass, he's still doing well. And like, sure, you could argue that Shanahan is some part of that, but you can't just say that, oh, it's only the run game and only the play action and, and all this stuff. So I, I, I think I'm, I'm probably higher on him than most because I don't think you could have that good of an offense for that long if you were just straight up bad. And I think it's probably the case that like a lot of the boring stuff he does 
that is valuable isn't really valued. So like repeatedly throwing to people in the middle of the field looks on time um, quickly. It looks boring and it's not like these wow plays that we see other quarterbacks do, but if you can consistently do that and create yards after the catch activity or uh, opportunities, then I, I think that's valuable. And it's just, it's hard to compare it to other players just because his play style is so different. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny. There's a, <laughs> there was like an analogy that I think it was George, uh, uh, George Jahuri, who is the <laughs> head of um, consumer at PFF and he and Eric eager have the forecast. So there I was listening to it this morning. I think it was their episode that came out yesterday, but they said about Jimmy was like perfect when they said that he's like an anchorman, Ron Burgundy. Like he just reads whatever's on the teleprompter without thinking. Right. So he's, he's, and he's not concerned about looking like an idiot basically. Like, cause some, he looks like an idiot sometimes Jimmy on these interceptions. Right. But he, you know, if you put something on that teleprompter, if you tell him to throw it into the middle, he's not going to double clutch it like some like some quarterbacks are. I mean, we see Baker Mayfield now. He looks like he's he's got a glitch sometimes that he's doing this all the time. Even someone like Kirk Cousins, who you think executes pretty well, he still has some conservatism on not wanting to to turn the ball over sometimes. Whereas Jimmy just really goes out there and to the best of his ability, tries to execute exactly what you're telling him to do without thinking, am I going to am I going to be scared of looking like a total idiot on this pass. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And and I think Kirk Cousins is kind of like that to an extent. And he also has these plays that look really dumb where like he goes right. through his progressions and uh, option one's not there. Option two's not there. Okay, I'll take the check down like I'm coached to, even if it's on third and long or whatever. And it like, it looks bad, but that's like, that's what they're taught to do. And they don't deviate from that. And um, sometimes it looks bad and doesn't work out, but other times like being able to run the system, you're tasked with running on time and getting the ball to your playmakers. Um, it can be valuable too. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's some Kirk similarity, although I think on, especially in the numbers come prove this on third down. I thought it was funny that he's right next to James, James Winston, as far as third down conversion, like career rate, because I think those two are fairly similar in a way that I, Jimmy Morso is not going to hit that check down. He's going to try to squeeze it into someone who's down the field who may not even really, really be open on that on that type of play. And that's when you get, you know, the potential for for a team to come to come back into it. So what I mean, what do you think about this? The Packers. Do you how much do you care about these guys coming back from injury or maybe, or you know, that, that everyone seems to be pinning a lot on their their success because this Packers defense is, you know, has not been good, basically. So if you're talking about Zedaria Smith is going to be back and then Jair Alexander, whoever may be playing in this game. And I don't know how up to speed these guys are. Like, do we care that much about what's going on with on the injury front? And even Bakhtiari, you know, he's been questionable to he's going to play to he's not going to play till he comes in and he hits the tent, you know, five plays into the game. I don't know what to think about this stuff. Yeah, for the, for the defensive players, um, it, it sounds like at least last time I saw it, it wasn't clear how much they're going to play and whether they're going to be limited and what that would look like for Zedaria Smith. It's not like he was his dominant self, even before the injury. So I think yeah. it would be pretty surprising if he came in and had a huge impact on this game uh, for Alexander. It's, it's a different story uh, because he, like he, he really is a, a top tier or was playing like a top tier corner and his, he had a like shoulder injury or something, right? Like something that yeah. is probably less impactful than what Smith is dealing with. Um, but again, it's, it's unclear how much he'll actually come in and how much the 49ers will actually end up throwing the ball or need to need to throw the ball. Um, and then on the other side, that one of the reasons I'm, I'm very curious about the Nick Bosa injury is, is, is because we don't know 
what Bakhtiari will look like coming back from his injury and whether he'll play the whole game and look like himself. So I think that's that's definitely some uncertainty thrown into this game along with the Garoppolo injury, of course. Um, but so I'm, I'm looking at markets and it says there's a, a 69% chance that the Packers win and, and that feels about right. Um, I think it would be lower, again, if Garoppolo were healthy, but there are questions about that. So that's where we are. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that all makes sense there. Now let's talk Rams-Bucks. This is probably a game where, like, if I listen to two different, like, cogent, convincing arguments for why the Rams can win this game or the Bucks can win this game, not can win this game, but will win this game, like, with some conviction, I could probably believe either of them, in, in a way. If you want to talk about, like, the injuries that Tampa Bay has, the fact that Tristan Wirfs won't be there, the fact that uh, Tom Brady, like his a dot went down to, you know, five yards. And even though he was getting the ball out quickly, he took four sacks. He'd never take that many sacks before. So whatever happens on that injury front. And if you want to talk about the Rams, the inability to trust Matthew Stafford offensively, the fact that the defense has been up and down at best this year. And the fact that the Bucks defense is getting healthy. So maybe they'll play like that defense that we've seen in the past. Where do you lean on this as a, as America's number one, Matthew Stafford hater? Yeah, so I think um, you mentioned possibly um, people buying the Bills high. I think that could also apply to the Rams here, where they were the other team that just dominated their game, um, despite, I think, the, the point spread was something like four points or something going into the game against yeah. the Cardinals. But before that, the Rams were looking really shaky. So they, of course, lost to the 49ers in the season finale in a game that could have cost them the division, but didn't because the Cardinals also lost. And then before that, they that was the the two point conversion attempt from the Ravens where they almost lost that to a backup quarterback. And then before that was I think Matthew Stafford had three interceptions against the Vikings, um, but they they still were able to pull it out. So it's not like this dominant Rams team that we saw on Monday night is who they have been recently. So like if I were trying to talk myself into the Bucks, then um, I, it would be that. The Cardinals were frauds. They've been playing terrible for the last month and a half, including losing to the Seahawks the week before. And the Rams put together a great game, but they're just not on the same tier as the Bucks. And I, I think I sort of believe that slash can talk myself into that. Um, but I kind of change my mind all the time, especially with all the, the Bucks injuries. Not not having their wide receivers is and Tristan Works too is is kind of concerning, especially against that Rams defense. But I. The, the, the possibility of Matthew Stafford having one of his Matthew Stafford games is like, it's always there. And if he can do it four times in a row to win a Super Bowl, good for him. But I would be kind of surprised if that happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, so my, like the numbers that I run on team strength and then make adjustments on it uh, versus the, the point spread or the money line, like last week I was on the Rams as being probably the best value, even as a four point favorite this week. It's pretty heavily on the Bucks as being as being a, um, a better team, and it's a little surprising. So you're right. This seems to be like a week over week change, even more significant than maybe the Bills' perception week over week change for for the Rams going into this. And offensively, you know the, the, the Stafford thing. You know he threw nine passes in the first half, right, against the Cardinals. And I know that Beckham, you know, caught a fade and had a couple of other catches, but the dude had like 50 yards receiving. Okay. It wasn't, people are acting like uh, Beckham is back to, you know, a 2014 form or something like that. So yeah, I think I'm probably fading them a little bit, 
more offensively. They were really bad running the ball for most of the season. And again, I feel like that's something that they might try to lean on a bit more uh, with Cam Akers back and looking pretty good. And I don't know. I mean, the, the Bucks are still pretty good defense when, when it comes to that to that regard. So I guess if I was going to pick out two games, maybe I don't know if you have any any betting flavor you want to throw out here. But for two games that I would that I would like is my numbers still like the 49ers. But again, that may be more of an injury thing here if we're talking about plus six. And they also like the Bucks minus three. And then I'm kind of just off on the AFC games. Yeah, I think that's probably the right approach. If, if I were absolutely forced to pick something, I think I would uh, pick the Bills. So I think we'd be on opposite sides of that one. But I, yeah. I, I think betting markets, especially in the playoffs, are pretty good because a million people have looked at these for the last week. Um, so like, it, it's hard to pick sides on, a, on an NFL game in the playoffs, but um, that, that would be the one that I would pick. Yeah, yeah, that's probably I have a psychological block on the Bills because of last year I was I told you I was high on them going into that game, and then I watched it and I was like, that was the dumbest thing. I can't believe I actually I actually thought that. All right, so before we get into, we'll just go straight into Seahawks talk here. Maybe we'll do on the back end some some GM stuff if if we have time on the end here. But before we do that, let's talk about Western and Southern. Want a chance to win the ultimate game day feast? Whether it's football success or financial savvy, winning starts with asking us questions. Would you like to know what it's like behind the scenes with Al on Sunday Night Football? How about a need to know for your financial future? Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead on both your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Every submission earns you a chance to win the ultimate feast to celebrate football's favorite Sunday. We'll cover your catering up to $2,500, coordinate your order from a restaurant near you, and have it delivered on February 13th, 2022. And don't forget to check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. Submit your questions at westernandsouthern.com slash feast. One more time, that's westernandsouthern.com slash feast. If you're watching on YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. All right, let's get to some... some actually, you know what? Let, let me hit DraftKings here because we're going to talk about Seahawks for a while here. So... We're on to the divisional round. If you want to place any bets, maybe, uh, you know, try to trail me on some of my losing bets this week. DraftKings Sportsbook is official sports betting partner of the NFL and is celebrating a huge odds boost for new customers. Counting down to Super Bowl 56, new customers can get 56 to 1 odds on any team. Bet just $5 and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. And if the sportsbook is not available in your state, there are huge cash prizes available with daily fantasy contest free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with your first deposit download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now use promo code PFF to get 56 to 1 odds on any NFL team bet just five dollars and win 280 in free bets if your team wins that's promo code PFF for 56 to 1 odds at DraftKings Sportsbook an official sports betting partner of the NFL must be 21 or older New Jersey Indiana or Pennsylvania only new customers only five dollar deposit and one dollar wagered one per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem called 1-800-GAMBLER. Okay, so there was a little bit of tension in the Seahawks offseason last year. The Russell Wilson drama, which, you know, I, I never really believed was going to come to fruition. Of course, it didn't. A lot of people at that point in time pointed to this 2022 offseason as being a more realistic chance. The team didn't make the playoffs for the first time in a while, which probably makes separating uh, a, tri- a separation here a little bit easier. Where do you stand big picture wise, knowing that there's no way Pete Carroll is gone, right? Where do you stand on the Russell Wilson situation? 
And presuming that you still want to keep Russell Wilson, what can they do to actually build something around this guy with hamstrung as they are with past moves to be a, you know, continuing to be like the perennial playoff type of team going forward? Yeah. So I think they, sh- they should keep him. It's hard to get a franchise quarterback. And whether you think Russell Wilson is the fifth best or the 10th best quarterback in the league or somewhere between there or, or even worse, it's like they're not going to do any better than that like if if they traded for and like what and what's the plan b though <laughs> yeah like what's the plan b in this situation that's what i really don't under i mean they, they can't like okay l- let's say that they did like geno smith is that is that your plan is that your plan b is it to uh, obtain another quarterback in a trade if you're gonna like switch out with with baker mayfield or daniel jones or someone like that um maybe it'd be like approaching the Der- draft i don't know Derek carr would be like one oh Derek Carr yeah people are high on Derek Carr now so that's a possibility <laughs> yeah so that, that'd be one re- realistic well not realistic possible possibility I guess would be like someone in the yeah. in the Derek Carr range and honestly I have no idea how much how much different or, or how, how much better or worse the Seahawks offense would perform if, if you replace Derek Carr with Russell Wilson they're just they're just such different players that it, it's hard to know um, okay, you heard her here first. You heard her here first. Derek Carr is just as good as Russell Wilson, according to Ben Baldwin. I'm gonna have to clip that for social media. Okay, go ahead. Um, and the so Russell Wilson's frustration. It, it sounds like we're born out of never having a good offensive line, at least in terms of pass protection. And like the thing he cited over and over was how many times he's gotten sacked, which I think is uh, kind of a abusive statistics from him because of course, a lot of that is his own fault. Um, but e- yeah. even if you look at stuff that is supposed to um, not penalize offensive lines for having a quarterback like Russell Wilson, like um, like the grade of the offensive line or like the, those survival curves that um, friend of the show, Timo Riske makes like the, the Seahawks just flat out, don't have good pass protection, um, however you want to measure it. And I, I think that's frustrating for him, especially comparing to like what the Buccaneers have done for Tom Brady or the, the Packers have done for Aaron Rodgers. Like they, they have had good offensive lines and weapons to throw to. Um, and but the, the Seahawks don't have a good offensive line and they, they have um, DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, of course, but behind them, they, they just haven't been able to have any kind of tertiary weapons that, probably especially in the playoffs, uh, not that they made it there this year, um, are especially important. Um, so in, in terms of uh, meeting his hopes slash demands, whatever it ends up being, they're, they're in a really hard spot because they do have cap space, but both of their tackles are free agents. And um, yeah, maybe they re-sign them uh, to some amount of money, um, even uh, although Dwayne Brown is, I think he'll be in his age 37 season next year. This would be a great time to have their uh, number 10 overall pick to draft a tackle like they need a tackle, but that is gone in the Jamal Adams trade. So they're they're really going to have to make the most of their money in free agency and their draft while missing uh, the number 10 pick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's part of like, I think about the draft. It's hard to say we're going to reboot while having no first round draft picks, right? Like that's yeah. not <laughs> optimal, optimal timing when you're thinking about the fact that, you know, Pete, Pete Carroll will not survive long enough to, to get back to there. But if they did trade Wilson, the thought might be, we could also jumpstart from a draft capital perspective, right? And try to paper over our past mistakes 
And I mean, in some ways, the Seahawks need to they need to roll a lot of like sevens in a row. Basically, they need to just hit on a bunch of things. So maybe you could say in a way that if you get a bunch of draft picks with Russell Wilson, your probability of hitting like a high, high end outcome and just knocking all of that out of the park, uh, including hitting a, a quarterback who could do well like that, that might give you the highest possibility of doing that. I'm not sure I even buy that myself, but could you see that type of thinking taking over? Yeah, that's like, especially if, if Russell Wilson continues to be frustrated and air his grievances publicly, then I think that's not how Pete Carroll likes to operate. So like, yeah, I could see them getting to a point where I say that this isn't worth it anymore. Uh, we're going to rebuild and some of this missing draft capital and more probably um, can be recouped. Um, yeah, I, I remember I think it was the first time you and I did a podcast together in like 2017. And, and you asked me how many first round picks it would take for the Seahawks to trade Russell Wilson. And it's amazing yeah. that we're five years later having this exact same conversation. So we'll, we'll see how long this lasts. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, you know, there, so this is another thing. I, I don't know. I don't want to get into like psychology and all this sort of stuff. But like, do you think the rumors about the 2018 draft and the fact that the Browns were interested potentially in trading the number one overall pick to the Seahawks and that the Seahawks like Josh Allen, all that stuff. I mean, when you hear things like that, then you start to get the idea that like Russell's demands are not just about the, you know, stewardship of building the offensive line and things like that. And in the same way for, you know, Aaron Rodgers, where I think like a lot of his hurt feelings have been ameliorated this season. That's why I think there's a good chance that he comes back. Like how much of it is it that Russell is just like, you guys still don't believe in me in the level that you should. Yeah. I think that's definitely part of it. And all, all those rumors about Baker Mayfield and Josh Allen, everything that that's, that's why he now has a no trade clause. So when, when he releases a, a list of teams that um, he would be willing to trade, be uh, willing to be traded to that, that's meaningful because he has to approve any trade because of this no trade clause that he now has. Um, but yeah, I I think there is some similarity with the Aaron Rodgers situation where Rodgers and Wilson, they know that they are the most important person to the outcome of games that their teams plays and want to be kind of valued and have that communicate communicated to them that they are valued as such. And I, I just, I'm, I don't think that is how Pete Carroll views the game of football. And that's, it's not like they're on bad terms personally, but they just have like there's always this talk about philosophical differences and that's I'm I'm not sure how that will ever go away as, as long as the all the major players are still there. Yeah, unfortunately the Seahawks did not have a chance to um facilitate Russell Wilson's uh, vaccination status deception the same way that the the Packers <laughs> did to prove their um <laughs> to prove their loyalty to, to Aaron Rodgers on that one. Okay, so let's say let, let's say Russ stays. Uh, I think there's some interesting important questions to to think about here. So have have we softened it all or have you softened it all I should say on let Russ cook being that he cooked it was working and then it stopped working kind of uh, or they gave up on the cooking and then they bring in Shane Waldron this year um they weren't like overly run heavy it's kind of hard here because i don't have the the geno games like pulled out on what they were doing so i don't think they were overly run heavy but they certainly weren't cooking like they were during the the first half of last season so what do you think about the shane waldron experiment vis-a-vis 
the Schottenheimer time. What what should they do if you're in charge now offensively with Russell Wilson if they keep him in the fold? Uh, obviously, Pete Carroll's not going to go here, but uh, have you changed at all for what you think they should be doing with him as far as using him as a high-volume passer? Uh, I don't think so. Um, and I, I, I do wonder if we'll ever see what uh, we saw in the, in the first half of, of 2020 again. And there, there were some things that um, perhaps won't be replicated. Like, uh, for example, their, their pass protection was really good then. So it, like, it's easier to convince yourself to call more pass plays if you can actually protect your quarterback. Um, and then in, in the second half of that season, we saw, we saw a lot of things change. Uh, like they, they clamped down on the offense. Their, some of their offensive linemen got hurt. Tyler Lockett got hurt again. And when, whenever Lockett has been hurt, their offense just really struggles. Uh, they played the Rams three times. Like a lot of bad stuff happened in the second half of, of 2020. And over the offseason, there was a lot of pandering about like, has, has the Seahawks or Russell Wilson been figured out? Can you just play with two high safeties in cover two and they won't be able to do anything? And I think the beginning of the season was encouraging because their offense was pretty good uh, before Wilson got hurt. They were, he had, uh, I think he had like the second highest grade at the time and grades not perfect, but like, you, I don't think someone can make the argument that he was playing poorly. Um, and they, they were like top, top 10 in EPA per play number five in DBOA. Um, so like they, they had a good offense and then Russell Wilson got hurt and then looked terrible coming back from the injury. And everyone after that was like, okay, Russell Wilson is washed, but um, I, I think he was a, a quarterback playing with a, a broken finger and just like that. So uh, in terms of what to expect going forward, um, it was kind of a weird season because the, the first, the first game against the Colts, they did all the stuff that Seahawks fans have wanted all this time, like basically running what looked like the Rams offense with all this under snap play action and pre-snap motion and jet sweeps. Um, but Unfortunately, during that game, D. Eskridge, who they spent their second round pick on, got a concussion and we didn't see him again for months. And whether it was because he was the only one that could do those plays or they had some <laughs> change of philosophy, we just we didn't really see that again. So it was. Yeah, you, you can't <laughs> waste these years either, because I think Eskridge is like 33. Yeah, years he, old he was like that, he so. was very old when he got. Yeah, he and the, the two two at will back to back second round NFC West picks uh, have not panned out so yeah. far. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I guess Estra Jalise is, is on the field, so that we'll give him yeah. a, we'll give him a leg up there. Um, yeah, so it's like maybe the offense will look different when he comes back, uh, Eskridge, um, and an off season to work on it some more. Um, maybe not. Um, it, it's really it's really hard to know uh, what they're thinking at times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, okay. What about DK? Let's talk about DK for a second because I do think there was this potential tension. You mentioned the locket up or down based upon him. I mean, how much? Do you think the connection with Russ and DK, do you think there is an issue there? Do you think it's overhyped? Um, Cause I'm also wondering if that plays into some of the Seahawks thinking of like, let's just bring somebody in who's just willing to chuck it to DK 15 times a game and then see what happens. Yeah. There, there is definitely some thought of that during the Geno Smith games where like he, he was willing to just chuck it to DK and like when it works, it looks great. Um, and there, there's always this thought of why, why can't Russ do this? And we, we heard kind of the same conversation about Dak Prescott and CeeDee Lamb over the weekend where, like, if you have this talent advantage, then why aren't you just taking advantage of that? And it, it is hard to know how much of that falls on the head coach or the person calling plays or the quarterback. Like, all of these people probably have some role in this. But, um, yes, it would be great to see uh, DK actually get the ball in his hands more. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's okay, let's let, let's maybe go back a little bit here. Um so Carol, you're not going you're obviously not a huge uh Pete Carroll supporter for at least the philosophical sort of sort of stuff that goes on there. Again, we talked about the the offensive coordinator situation. I don't know. Like you if it, if maybe not the best fit at least the, the results so far, but not necessarily the worst either. Front office wise, like Schneider seems like he's pretty locked in also even despite the disasters over and over again, like what sort of dislocation has to happen with this team for Carol and Schneider to actually get put under the microscope for, for ownership. I mean, you, you think they should be there now, I assume. Under the microscope. Yeah. Not perhaps not in Seattle, but, (laughs) but um, (laughs) uh, yeah. So like the, the way they've used their high end draft capital is just inexcusable, I think. And going back years, um, like, yeah, Rashad Penny had a great month in 2021, but they used a first round pick in him in, in 2018. And that's basically all I've gotten for him. And, and it's not like this is hindsight speaking. It's, it's bad process to draft a running back in the first round. And then the Jamal Adams trade, they traded two first round picks and a third round pick, which is just an enormous amount of draft capital. And like, if you compare how to uh, how other NFC West teams, what they've gotten out of their draft picks, like the maybe the Rams trade for Jalen Ramsey wasn't the best idea in terms of process to first round picks for a quarterback, but like Jalen Ramsey is a great player and an impactful player. And the Seahawks spent even more on Jamal Adams and the, the return just isn't there. The, the 49ers. Well, go, go I don't remember. I don't remember your take on it uh, in the moment. Were you a coward? Like some of these Seahawks fans and tried to try to justify this, this trade in the moment. Oh no, it was, I, I, I wrote an article on the trade and like the, the very first sentence was, I would not have done this trade. Like this is, this is the high level bullet point before we talk about this trade at all. So yeah, there, there was a lot of like, well, you know, it's, it, you know, you know, like yeah, maybe there, there was a lot about of, uh, like they're, they're in win now mode and this is their timeline with their, like right. with Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner and their age and everything. But like, that doesn't justify just throwing away these, these picks. Like, it's it's not like basketball where you have to wait five years before a high-end draft pick turns into like a player that actually helps your team win. Like first round picks yeah. very often come in and make an impact even in their first year and, and certainly in their second year. And like this, this would have been the rookie season for uh, last year's first round pick, um, which I think it was like pick 23. And then of course this is pick number 10 and you would ex- be expecting this player to contribute next year. And that's, that's a hole in their roster that, um is going to be there and that's i think that's why people have such a hard time understanding why these trades are so big is because you 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 don't notice the player that's not on your roster because you traded this pick the the four years of cost control where you you do notice jamal adams there and it's very visible but you don't notice that the seahawks are missing what could what could be a very impactful player at at a cost control contract yeah but then you're gonna have the the people that'll come out and be like, well, they blow all their first picks anyway, so the first round picks. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so that, that was another argument. And, and going back to the the front office, Carolyn Schneider, that's good. That's not a good argument in their defense. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Everything's still living off of that 2012 uh, draft now. Um, okay, so th- th- this is it's it's kind of dark here for for the Seahawks, um, but again, it's a team that was making the playoffs despite that every single year. So can the Seahawks get back to the playoffs in 2022, assuming 
Russell comes back. Is it is it even a possibility with the emergence of the Cardinals now? I think that's probably the the lever, right? That makes it very difficult in in a lot of people's minds for their situation, at least for the next couple of years, unless Trey Lance ends up completely falling on his face or something, then that may open up a little bit more of a window to have an easier schedule and and be able to get in. Yeah. So I think one of the arguments in their favor is um, very similar to the conversation about the 49ers over the last offseason is that they're going to get a last place schedule and a very easy schedule. So now that there's the 17th game, that's one extra game of playing against a last place team. And I, I think they get, I think it's the Jets next year, the last, the last place team in the AFC East. And then they're out, they get like the Lions and uh, Falcons or Panthers, like all, all these teams that like, yeah, there's some teams get better or worse over the off season, but the, the, these teams are probably aren't going to be very good again next year, especially relative to the, the teams that like the Rams and 49ers are going to have to play against. So I, I think, yeah. When I, I think we'll we'll be looking at playoff projections next August or September, and the Seahawks will have like a fifty percent chance of making the playoffs, like they always do, and then have a decent shot to get in. And then if they get in the first time they play, one of the really good teams in the NFC will lose. So I, that's the bleakness for me is is not because they don't have a shot at making the playoffs; it's because they don't really have a shot at actually being contenders. Okay. Okay. So. Let's let me let me flip to the Russell Wilson is not there, and this is not really a Seahawks question. This is more of a Russ question. When you've heard, you know, you hear the Raiders being talked about, you hear the Bears are being talked about, you hear about the the Giants being talked about. Like, I'm not quite sure what Russ's like what his parameters are for judging where he wants to go. It doesn't seem like roster talent and winning a Super Bowl is necessary high up on that list. What would you do if you were Russ and you were looking for another location to go to? Where would you want to go? I think. Denver would be one of the first places that comes right. to mind. They, they have receivers and possibly a defense, although it, it's hard to know what uh, losing, losing Fangio will do for the defensive side of things. Um, another one sort of is the Saints because they have an offensive line, but they're... Yeah, like, that, that's a good one. That, that's the one that's been talked about, right? Yeah, and they're, they're, the, the caveat there is their receivers aren't world beaters by any stretch. So you're, you're going from DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett to whatever the saints have, maybe, maybe Michael Thomas will be back by then, but maybe not. No, I, I think nobody knows at this point. Um, so I, I think those would be the first two places that come to mind. Maybe. Okay. If you're the saints, would you rather have Jameis Winston? You're paying him uh, <laughs> 50, $20 million or Russell Wilson. I don't know what is his base contract is 25 million or something like that. And uh, you know, minus, three, four, first and second round draft picks, which one would you rather have? I think if, if I were the Saints, let's, I'm looking at uh, Russell Wilson's contract. Just out or of Taysom Hill. <laughs> <laughs> let's see. So his, let's see, Russell Wilson's guaranteed salary. Let's see. This is terrible podcasting, and I can't even read this, so I'll, so I'll skip this part. I, I, I think if it, if it it's were healthy. like... It's healthy, whatever yeah, it is. I, if it were a lot of first round picks, I would probably be hesitant to do that just because we've seen Jameis be actually pretty good in that offense. And I guess there's a caveat with him tearing his ACL. So at the very least, I would say it's not obvious, Um, not obviously a no brainer. Yeah. Yeah. Because I wonder a little bit, not specifically about the saints, but I do wonder a little bit 
And this goes all the way back to, I remember there was an article in SI years ago about the conflict between the Legion of Boom and Russell Wilson, and the author of that article, whose name escapes me right now, um, this is also bad podcasting, but he was fielding some angry replies in Twitter about Russell Wilson. And he claimed at that point in time, oh, I again, this. this is like yeah. five years ago. This is five years ago. He claimed that there were only a handful of teams who would even want to trade for Russell Wilson at that point in time. And I do think there's something with Russell where his perception, not his actual value, but his perception probably went from being like top 10 ish sort of quarterback all the way up to a one B to Mahomes one a for about a year and a half. And now has maybe fall fallen back to being a top 10 ish sort of quarterback. So, my one thing in wondering about this, and we'll see what your opinion is on this, is like maybe there's there's like this dislocation between what teams are willing to give up for him and what the Seahawks could trade him for and not feel like they're going to get completely crushed by their fans and by just public perception of giving him away for less than what people suspect he is worth. Yeah, I think that's right. And even going back to the Saints, like everyone says Sean Payton is like very exacting and wants to be precise with his offense and wants someone who who goes out and runs exactly what his offense is supposed to be. And of yeah, course, Drew yeah. Brees, Not Russell Wilson yeah, there. <laughs> Drew Brees is like the exact personification of this, where he like he does everything exactly like you're supposed to. And and all the films film people say they watch the Saints offense because like they can tell what it's supposed to be because Drew Brees executes it exactly to perfection every single time. That, that's like the complete yeah. opposite of Russell Wilson. So it, <laughs> Russell Wilson's a great quarterback. If you're like, we don't know what the hell we're doing. So we're just going to throw him back there and good shit will happen basically. Yeah. That's, that's been the Seahawks for a long time. And, and that's, <laughs> and, and that's not even necessarily an indictment of the coaches. He just like, he doesn't play in structure a lot of the time. Um, and that doesn't make him bad or not valuable. It's just not what I think a lot of coaches would prefer to work with because why are you spending all this time drawing up your perfect plays and your perfect scheme if the quarterback is just not going to do it anyway? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So last question here before we wrap up and I appreciate you being so generous with your time here. Um, if Russ is traded, are you rooting for Russ's new team versus the Seahawks? If they end up facing off against each other, let's say in, in a, in a, in a crucial regular season or playoff matchup. Yeah, this is a good question. It would probably partially depend on the actual team. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, just as like a default, I would probably say the Seahawks unless unless it was like a super fun uh, alternative choice. I don't know what that would be. If it, if it was like Washington football team, then heck no, I'm not rooting for the Washington to beat the Seahawks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, despite being a local here. All right, well, Ben, thank you so much for your time. Everyone follow Ben. You're probably, if you're following me, you're probably already following Ben on Twitter, at Ben B. Baldwin. Uh, also, rbsdm.com runningbackstonematter.com the preeminent source you basically get like a name drop every single week on here where i'm double or triple checking my own thoughts with the resources you put out there ben so you know thank you so much from me and from all the other nerds out there for all that you do and all the free resources you put out there um otherwise i'll be coming at everyone here again next week with a wrap-up pod on monday afternoon for the divisional round and whatever the news of the weekend is. Thanks so much, everybody.